Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Dark Rhino's Security Confidential. Tonight, we are honored to have Dennis Underwood join us. Dennis is a fantastic human being, but in addition to being a fantastic human being, he's in Pittsburgh, which gives him bonus points because that's where we're at. Um, but also, he is an entrepreneur. Dennis is a veteran. He's an expert in cryptography, and he's a cybersecurity leader. He also happens to be the CEO of Cyber Crucible. So he is kind enough to join us today and enlighten us on many topics that are going to be of interest to you folks in the world of cybersecurity. Dennis, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me, Manoj. I really like this. Hey. Uh, so, Dennis, you know, one of the things uh, that I'd love to start off with is that you're a veteran. And uh, we have, you know, at Dark Rhino, we have a lot of veterans in our organization. A lot of our listeners are veterans. Uh, one of the questions that comes up is that as they are transitioning from military life to civilian life, especially if they're looking for a career in cyber, what's the guidance on how they should go about doing that? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, I, I should say, you know, right out of the gate that my, my MOS or my specialty when I was in the military was actually artillery. Uh, so there was nothing cybery or like signals intelligence or any anything like that at all. Like it was totally combat arms, uh, not easily transferable. Like I wasn't good enough to be like the Punisher, or, like a SEAL team guy, you know, I was just a normal grunt, you know, like I, I couldn't go be an assassin, you know, but like also I didn't have any skills. So um, honestly, what I ended up doing was I ended up, uh, cyber is a great, great place to be for, for IT because like if you're just a normal IT person, um, you have to kind of memorize that active directory playbook, right? And then come out okay. with all of that knowledge, yep. right? And with cyber, your goal isn't to memorize page 44 through 46. Your, your, your goal is to break it, to do things that they say don't do, right? Which is a lot easier to do in your spare time. So uh, I love cyber because like you can do that. You could, you're going to have to research on your own, just get in the habit of doing that, right? I mean, none of us get to where we are by just doing the eight to five. Um, and so during your off hours at Garrison or whatever, um, go ahead and research. I will tell you a cool story. So um, whenever I was deployed to Iraq, I realized that for Operation Iraqi Freedom in like 2003, you know. Oh, so, so you were there how long? Uh, a little over, just over a year, like 13 months or something like that. I was actually in country. But um, yeah, so what, what it, I, was, I was doing combat missions and, and convoy missions, which arguably might not be combat combat just all driving around and stuff like that right and um and so in between missions i would have my sans books and i would always always take my sans books with me in the humvee right and i'd bring it out it'll be right next to like maybe ammo or whatever else you know well the the qurans are always like thread bound if you ever look at them you know and i realized it's not just because they're so special but what's happening was that I'd be on the side of a road, you know, in between missions, and I'd be reading my SANS book to keep up on the firewalls and everything else, right? Because I don't want my yeah. skills to atrophy, uh, part of that whole in your spare time. Well, the glue was melting on all of my SANS books because of the heat, right? The massive heat in the desert. What was the temperature out there? Like 130, sometimes 150, you, you know, depending on if it's inside the Humvee. Yeah, it's oh, just yeah, pretty, you're uh, inside a Humvee. Yeah, so it's pretty intense, and you'd be, like, driving around a rock or, or maybe taking a break, going down to Kuwait or whatever. But, like, so um, so chapters of the book would actually fall out, and the desert wind was always blowing, 
and so you'd actually lose like it might be on like how to manage a cisco properly a cisco router properly or something you know as part of your uh, sans certification you know and it would blow away and there were always like a rockies around that would kind of hang out and i don't you know someone candy or whatever some were just like keeping tabs on you you know and so it took me way too long to realize that you know um that the pages that were flying away well first of all when i got back home and started doing like you know getting my lab back going and everything and then yeah. transitioning out i could actually tell what chapters i was missing because like i'd be like i forget how to do that and i'd look and i'd be like oh that chapter's somewhere in a rock you know it's in the um, desert yeah but it was, it was kind of cool because you know they, they would they would think it's like uh classified data or mission data or something it all looks very technical you know it's like firewall rules and stuff like that you know and so they they'd run away and i try to chase them i could never keep up with them you know like but um but you know they always take my stuff and i'm thinking man i really needed chapter four because i have i want to take a cert when i get back when i get out you know um so anyway cool story about like you know you should have uh you know and, and so your training then in cyber, you did on your own. You weren't uh, – the military didn't give you that tool set. No, I actually uh, – when I got back, I, I transitioned over to like a telecommunications job, and it turns out the military's you – know, I was all, already on the way out kind of. you know. And the military's version of that was at the time uh, stringing telephone lines and climbing up telephone poles and things like that. So I still didn't hit the mark. Uh, th you know, that was in 2005. So things are different now, you know, but I was like, I'm going to get into cyber before I leave. And then they put me up on a telephone pool. And I was like, that is not cyber, you know, so. Well, how did you because you have an illustrious past and uh, you got the attention of the NSA or probably some other three letter agencies. How did that come about then? Yeah, so, um, it, you know, Again, the good thing about cyber is you're paid to break stuff, you know, or, or you're you're getting ready to be paid to break stuff. So um, what happened was, was I had gone back to school. Um, I was actually in graduate school at the time down in UNC uh, Charlotte uh, and uh, great at the time. I don't know now, but at the time it was great because all, all the banks could hire from there. Right. So the Bank of America needs a lot of crypto, you know, and um, yeah, I can understand. So uh, there was an unbreakable malware, uh, like a botnet, you know, a peer-to-peer -peer botnet. It was one of Configure's cousins, I guess, or something. Okay. And, um, and you know, the, the news story was that with the researchers at this university uh, and from FBI were that this thing is unbreakable and no one can seem to get a handle on it. So I said, well, that's great because I'm training to be a cyber guy and I've done this on my own all along. So let's stand up, a, you know, let's pivot my lab over. Um, so I think what probably got their attention, and I, don't, I, I never saw this like in writing or anything, but I figured out a way, uh, a weakness in their cryptography and their peer-to-peer -peer algorithm that would protect to say only the boss can really tell me what to do kind of thing, you know. And okay. so I figured out a weakness, and I set up a, I did a whole bunch of work and a whole bunch of math and stuff like that, protocol analysis. And then I came up with an Independence Day-style attack on this peer-to-peer -peer botnet. That would just kind of like in the movie, just collapse the whole thing on itself, you know. Well, it, it was really interesting because what happened was, and this is all like, this is the power of being able to be like that dark horse researcher on your own, you know, where you're you're figuring things out. So um, I, I got POC code and demonstrated I, I could actually destroy the have the malware destroy itself, you know. And so the dean called up someone. And next thing I know, two guys flew in from uh, – they said NORAD um, for all the military folks out there. You know what that is. Okay. And 
Um, so they flew in the same day, apparently, on a on I guess a private jet. I don't I don't think US Air would do you that. Really you know? got their attention. I did, um, and it was really interesting because while I was, so the so the dean was trying to maneuver me out of making any money. He was trying to sell it to the government, but also take it from me. You know. Okay. In the other room, it, it it was like a soap opera. In the other room, while these guys were trying to get my stuff, right? Um, uh, a researcher, another professor at the university, there was a global like anti-botnet kind of like peer-to-peer botnet like alias, email alias, right? And he was emailing like you know thousands of researchers all over the world saying, hey, we have a guy here who found a vulnerability in the peer-to-peer algorithm. And he gave enough detail that while these negotiations were happening and there was posturing by the dean of the college and stuff to like kind of cut me out, I was watching yeah. the bad guys were actually dynamically patching their code to fix the vulnerability. Really? So within that 24-hour period, my code was useless, and but I didn't tell anyone. So I finally had it, and I actually did this whole like it, it was very much like a uh, like those uh, the Spanish language uh, soap operas, you know. Uh, I, I was kind of like, no one gets it. Then I delete the code, you know. You, no one gets it, you know. <laughs> And no one knew that it was actually useless at that point because this this researcher had naively emailed the Russians basically to say, you know, hey, here's your vulnerability. You know, you should probably patch this kind of you kind should. of thing. Oh man. So anyway, so that got the attention of some folks, I think. You know, at least the people who flew in, right? Yeah. Um, and I'm sure um, that vulnerability would have been worth millions of dollars on the black market. I would assume, yes. I, I'm again a plucky researcher. You don't really think about the business side, right? At that point in life, you're just, well, you know. Apparently, I, and this is from an article. This is not from personal experience, but what I read was that in the U.S., uh, you know, the zero-day brokers. If you want to find a zero-day vulnerability, the going rate's about three million dollars. That's a that's a nice little uh, vacation. You know. That is, yeah. <laughs> it's a nice little vacation. A lot I, of Motel Six. Yeah. <laughs> you know, after that happens, and and if you're ever identified, you better be in a non-extraditable country. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Start learning out with uh, Spanish or Venezuela, Just whatever, Venezuela whatever you got to do. You yeah. Disappear into the rainforest. Uh, never pick up a mobile device again. But uh, yeah, yeah. That's that's incredible. And, and, you know, part of this, what you're speaking to is also innovation, which is a great story. Uh, you know, nobody told you that this was not possible to do. Yeah, you you're absolutely right. Yeah. Right. And, and that's why I love, you know, uh, anyone who's looking to get into it, I'm like, pick up a book, pick up 10 books, you know, just start researching and, and uh, just start doing things that they say you can't do, you know, and, that, and that's the best way to um, – become a researcher. Uh, I, I will say that for someone who's looking to be like a SOC analyst, you know, kind of like that, that entry level, um, yeah. looking at log, yeah, go ahead and get your vendor certification. I, I definitely would say, um, you know, if I, if I hadn't been able to get enough consulting work to feed the family and, and, you know, pay the bills, I would have had to have been smart about it and do like a, you know, some vendor cert for security. Um, but I, I took the longer road and I said, no, let me figure out how to kind of, uh, uh, do something more interesting, you know. Oh, and we're very glad you did, because uh, audiences, you guys will hear in a min in a minute. Uh, Dennis has done some interesting things with ransomware, and uh, you know, let's in fact transition to that for a second. So ransomware, it's in the news everywhere. You know, Constantly. every day, 
someone's getting hit. And it seems like no matter how much awareness is being generated, there's still one of the things that we uh, see a lot is that, well, it's something that happens to other people. It won't happen to our company. There's a lot of that mentality, tons of it going around. The other one that we see is, uh, well, we're in the cloud. So security is Microsoft's problem. It's Google's problem. It's Amazon's problem. Why do I give a shit about this? Right? That We see that myth come through all the time. Right? And, uh, you know, the third thing is, well, we're, we're protected at the endpoints. We've got what we, what we need. We're good here. So the, just setting a little bit of the stage, uh, you know, and, and this is coming from a lot of our work that we do in the small, medium business space. Um, so can't speak to the enterprise, but we're certainly seeing this in the SMB space, uh, these kinds of myths propagating out there. So the question to you is, from a real expert, why is it that companies can't get their act together with ransomware. Yes, it's really interesting. Uh, so c coming from, you know, when I went to NSA, I ended up doing, there were some operations, there was also a lot of threat hunting I did, you know? And uh, the one thing I, I'd seen before going there that kind of just made it, made my, um, we'll say maybe more jaded, if anything, um, was that, you know, the, the bad guys seem to always have access. You know, every time I'd find something, it would be, oh, look, they were there for, oh, six months, you know? Um, and so what I think we're seeing is, um, honestly, I, I think economics are a lot of the drivers for why, why the behavior changed. So we'll say they always have access, right? You know, they're, they're getting in, they're getting into big places and small places. Um, and the, um, one thing about the behavior change is that there's so much data that's out there that's been stolen. I and mean, look at the T-Mobile breach that's got in the news, right? Just oh. add more. It's T-Mobile, Accenture was in the news, and the recently the State Department. Uh... Yeah, it, it just never stops, right? And so what's happened is that the data has devalued, right? Because it's just it's the whole game of like, well, if everybody has a pile of diamonds in their backyard, then diamonds would not be worth as That's much, right. right? You know, and uh, I'm sure you could have a De Beers executive on to talk all about that, you know, like scare, force if scarcity. If it wasn't for them artificially controlling the market, that would in fact be the case because diamonds are actually not right. so rare that's a side <laughs> don't tell don't tell any 21 year old trying to buy an engagement ring right remember when <laughs> you're broke oh. trying to buy this big ring you know um so i guess you know what happened was was that the the um when you have the ransomware variable all of a sudden the value of your access goes way up because you're not only tapping into these ambiguous bad but not as easily defined data breach costs to the company right because you really it, it, uh, you know, it's hard to sometimes equate those data breach costs to an actual event, right? But you're looking at their quarterly reports. But for ransomware, what happens is, is you're removing the, the, the data, right? Um, and you're also removing the revenue generating ability of the business. And now you're not just making the security guys upset, you know, now all of a sudden the CFO's calling because his QuickBooks or whatever accounting software he's using sure. just, just went straight down, you know? Um, and so it, it's a very uh, it's a very costly exercise, and it's no longer dependent on the availability of data breaches because there's tons of data out there on the, on the quote unquote dark web, right? But what's happening is now it's like directly tied to the revenue that the and the assets that the business has, um, and so um, I, I think 
we have spies now that have turned into essentially sappers or you know bombers you know where now they're blowing things up inside the business uh instead of just like sitting there and, and slurping out data and why is this problem so difficult to get under control from a business perspective you know yeah, so and, and, and this is if i'd love for you to address this in the context of an executive because an executive is thinking in a business my it guy is the greatest group of people on earth and they always and they've are. got yeah. everything under control and yet they get shafted so <laughs> yeah and, and it's um uh in in there's this myth, first of all, that uh, somehow these security teams aren't doing their job or aren't competent or the IT folks aren't. And I'm like, I'll go in and I, I'll see these very tired group of people before or after an attack. Right. And I'm just like, these guys are busting their butts, you know, like and, and it's never it's never that they just throw caution to the wind and say, oh, whatever, you know, like um, right. they're always trying their hardest. What I have found um, is that from, from like a business standpoint, so the uh the attackers actually um we actually have a document that goes through like you know seven questions to ask the ransomware vendor you know like if they come to you and say like because it, it's a pretty sad set of questions but regardless on the business side um whatever it's like the cio up there in the boardroom trying to defend what just happened um the defenses it, it seems like either either they're missing it because they've always missed it because it takes three months for the the vendor to catch up to actually let you find it right um, right. And then with ransomware, you don't have three months, right? It, right. It's just an immediate impact, right? Uh, and it's business impacting, uh, it, you know, impact. Um, so either they're they're too slow, right? Or maybe they, you know, like a, I, I have a love hate with silence and tools like that um, because they can generate. Like I can always find a data breach in silence, for instance, right? But yeah. that SOC one, SOC two analyst doesn't have the skills to know how to dive into all that data. And doesn't have the time, you know, and and so that that's a problem for businesses, right? Um, is that the ransomware might take 15 minutes to position and go, you know, you you don't have you don't have three months to try to find that. The second thing I see wrong is that you know beyond the evasion and everything, um, is that we're actually seeing where it, it's a uh, it's a zero trust situation where because um, we have our product we put out there, and then we realized very quickly that. Um, not only are we protecting, but that the attackers have system or domain admin, and they are uh, like, I can't even trust the own system I'm on, you know, like that the hackers have totally taken it over. And so we're seeing where it's a resilience issue, because zero trust, everyone talks about zero trust from a make sure that one user is the right user, you know, well, right. it's actually... Um, is it really the kernel telling me, the Windows kernel telling me to do this, or is it lying to me? You know, like, and is it is it a hacker telling me? And that's a problem, right? Whenever you're trying to be, you can't trust the system you're on uh, at all. You know, which that is was more like Solar I mean, Winds, those guys up their own privileges. Yes, right? so Solar Winds, Kaseya, before that, ConnectWise, and they're all at high privilege, right? They're all normally whitelisted, uh, and so it's a great place for a hacker to be. Uh, and you know they have they can run amok with whatever they want to do. I loved Kaseya. I mean, this is from a security guy, right? Again, the plucky researcher, because before Kaseya, I never actually got to respond where the antivirus and the EDRs were actually working. They were always in some way degraded or disabled because the hacker was able to nuke them. You know, um, with Kaseya, 
all the tools were working at full capacity, you know? And so wow. I was like, I finally get to see like what SEAL Team 6 looks like when they're really, you know, when I don't <laughs> blindfold them, you know, like, and um, it was still a bit, a bit of carnage, right? You know, but it's a great example of what you're talking about there. Yeah. And I think uh, for our audience, uh, what Dennis, you know, a take home here would be zero trust is not the end all and be all. Cause obviously if you have elevated privileges that are trusted, well, your zero trust framework isn't exactly going to work. Yeah. We, um, one of the things that we noticed in our telemetry, which it kind of spurred a whole bunch of development on our side was that um, at, at first it was all like, you know, uh, hacker, you know, hackerlaws.exe and stuff like that that were in uh, all of our telemetry or ryuk.exe, things like that in terms of ransomware being run. And then we realized that um, it was actually a pretty quick transition. It wasn't hacker.exe anymore. It was all like Windows applications that were getting stopped or other privileged applications. And we realized what was going on was that even with zero trust, I mean, what do you do when you trust your SharePoint server and the hacker has injected ransomware and now your SharePoint server is doing SharePoint things, but also doing ransomware things, right? And that's zero trust won't really help you there, right? Because you're saying, oh no, that that's SharePoint. That has access to the to the e-commerce server or whatever. That's that's very true. And then that's also a case where I, I'm glad you pointed it out that uh, where Microsoft, even though they have great security, just because you're on their platform is not going to stop this as well. Right, right. And I, I, I didn't touch on the cloud thing at all. Sorry. Yeah. So no, um, please, please do. Because there's a, uh, let, let's do a little myth busting on that one. There's absolutely. A lot of that so going so around. the first is not a technical problem at all. And if you ever follow, uh, like I follow some of your, your posts and, 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 you know, some of your peers. And uh, if you look at like the risk mitigation or risk acceptance in, in the cloud model, um, they the, the cloud providers make sure that you're the one accepting the risk, you know, of security Absolutely. and everything else, right? Um, so it's a, it's a business if to have it be anything else. Exactly. Yeah, it's not their problem. Um, and so, um, having said that, though, um, we do see where the ransomware. It's funny because because the people think the ransomware is like targeting certain things, like they're super smart. Uh, what we find is that a lot of times the the Windows libraries they use or the other libraries they use are um, made for resilient commercial operations. They're made to like help businesses, you know? And so uh, sometimes the ransomware will run and depending on which library they use, it will happily connect to that server that's remote that doesn't even have a drive letter, you know? And it will just go ahead and access it. It's a file handle. Hey, hey, here we go, you know? Mm -hmm. And it doesn't care that it's like actually in inside of like a Google Cloud instance or anything, you know. Yep. That's. We, keep going. Sorry. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm on a roll. I, you know, I, I had four cups of coffee this morning, and so oh, it's just. I'm, it's hey, I'm working on my first cup here, so I apologize. <laughs> it does so, smell uh, good. Sorry, we don't have smell of vision on this podcast. It would be but... better. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we, sorry, we do see, Go for it. Yeah, yeah. We we do see where um, actually attackers will prepare the environment, I, I, you know, from the military folks, prepare the battlefield. So if we have a ransomware that is, for instance, not all that um, advanced, we've actually seen where they'll run a script and we'll say the ransomware can only encrypt things with drive letter number, you know, drive letters like A through Z, you know, okay. they'll actually go ahead and mount that Dropbox or whatever to a drive letter 
just to make sure that the ransomware hits it. So it's like you have this supply chain, right? Because you have this like ransomware hacker developer who is really good at like C, C++ and all that kind of stuff, .NET, whatever. And then you have this DevOps guy or girl, right, woman, who, who like can't do the Cs and the C++s just to be a coder for a second. Like, but then like will um, – but knows to mount that drive in PowerShell to make sure that the ransomware hits it too. Um, and so we've seen that as well, which is actually pretty Your interesting. Your SIM should be triggered on that big time. Right there, there should be some alarm bells going off in your sock as soon as someone tries to do that. Well, I, I would think it's um, I mean, it depends on how they're configured, but these are like legitimate things, right? I mean, a, a user because they they've co-opted a user at that point, right, or whatever. And um, I think I would probably go crazy, like if Manoj, you gave, you gave me a, a task to like, hey. Every time a user mounts their their cloud instance to a drive letter, I want to know about it, and I want you to talk to them and see if it's really them. I think I'd probably last about a week, and then you know I'd I'd lose my hair. It would be, it would be ugly, you know. So, um, and uh, so that's that's where uh, you know I, I think it's just yes, that could trigger something. Hey, if you see your cloud instances get mounted to a drive letter, that that definitely could work. Um, the the attackers have um, the more modern ransomware does a better job of, of handling that kind of situation, you know, so. And so the dwell times of ransomware when they're prepping the environment, it, there used to be an old statistic that it was like 200 plus days that people were it's in. Part of mine, yeah. So what is, what is it currently? Have the advances that, shortened that dwell time substantially at this point? It's, that's a great question. It, it really depends which i know is not helpful for anyone you know but we we have seen this trend where they are like taking over um the automation is, is becoming a bigger play where the the ransomware as a service folks that everyone i should say everyone some folks think it's like this this elite kind of like uh, mastermind you know who's like running the show and then i find out that it's like uh uh really someone who's marginally useful uh who just has 20 scripts to run you know and, and they know that they hey run these 20 scripts and it will do, it'll, it'll, you know, disable the EDRs or, or, or firewall off the XDR or whatever they're doing, you know? Um, and so the dwell time can be shorter. I've learned, I've noticed if, um, first of all, if, if all the scripts happen to line up, I call it speed bump security. Cause once, once the script breaks, then these, these people sometimes are stuck and they have to move on, you know? Um, but also if they take over the active directory server, then I have seen, where they will deploy group policy to download, install, and run the ransomware um, on a ton of machines at once. And at that point, you don't really need a lot of dwell time, right? You have Active Directory doing it for you. And what is the rate of encryption? That's a great question. So it depends on what's being encrypted and, and where it's being encrypted. And, and let me explain that. So. The, the, the max we've seen is around 300 files per second. Um, that, that's the cap per ransomware incident. Now, that can be slower if you have 50 workstations all running through one switch trying to encrypt that remote server, right, which is a, a common scenario. So, 300 files per second, is that per core or is that just that's the flat-out limit? We did the flat-out limit to make it easy. Now, it's interesting you say that because what will happen is is they'll actually tune the number of threads inside the ransomware variant um, okay. to do simultaneous 
So 300 is about, I think, like 30 threads, I think is what we saw. Um, if they want to go low and slow, they can reduce that number. Uh, some early versions of ransomware would make it like 100. The problem is, is that this is an old sysadmin problem, is that if you try to do too much on the system or over the network, file corruption starts happening, right? Or if the switch can't handle those 50 machines all trying to encrypt the servers, file corruption starts happening on the, on, on the network layer, right? And so... Um, so they have to tune it to be kind of like fast, but not too fast. It's like uh, Han Solo, like fly casual, but not too casual, you know? Um, so they'll do that, you know? That's why they like to maneuver to the server sometimes, because once you're on the server, you, you might only get 100 files a second, you know, remotely, but on the server, you can crank that thing all the way up to 11, you know, and, uh, and really, uh, you know, get the ransomware going. They've done something else too recently. Uh, and this goes back to part of like why are things stopping this, you know, from the perspective is that the defenses will many times uh, th they'll come in after the fact. So I, I always when I talk to a business person, I'll say, look, it's like a bad guy puts on a guard uniform in a bank, you know, and and then like he's going in and out of the safe, you know, and he's taking money out. And then eventually someone is like, I don't think that man's really a security guard for our bank, you know, and by then. 20% of the money's gone, you know? And, and so uh, a lot of the defenses are like that, where the behavior analysis is enough money has left the bank to eventually be like, we should, can someone check his driver's license, please? Yeah. You know? Um, and, and so um, what I want to end up happening is that these things will all fire up. Well, if you have 20% going, what if you have like 20 guards all taking money out, right? So sometimes the ransomware attackers will actually stand up 20 or we've seen as high as 50 ransomware samples on each system wow. and you have 50 systems. And on that point, we calculated at one, one site that went down. We weren't there yet, of course, you know, we, we got called after, but um, it was over a million files per second were, were actually being uh, encrypted when it went, it was almost like a DDoS, right? Where all the machines stand up at once and wow. just crush the systems. So, we, we do see that as well. And, and so really it comes down to uh, you have around 100 to 200 milliseconds before damage starts. So it has to be automated and you have to start like immediately to stop and, and the that, business downtime. That is a great metric. And I want the audience to please make a note of it. You, you have 100 to 200 milliseconds. You talk about response time. And, and, and during the Cold War, we had 30 minutes of flight time from the Soviet <laughs> Union to the United States, right? Right. That that seems like an eternity compared to 100 to 200 milliseconds. That's faster than the blink of an eye. Yeah, we've actually, um, in our own product, uh, like for like the 50 samples happening all at once, uh, we've had to, you know, my developers came to me and said, our stuff's too slow. And I said, well, we're, we're an application. And they said, you understand that our driver and the kernel, it's too slow communicating to the service in our Windows application that that data bus on the same system is too slow. You know, and so they were moving things into the actual driver because they had to get it faster to go down to the sea, wow. the sea level. Yeah. So let, let's talk about your company and your product and how you guys are actually tackling this problem. So what's the... Uh design behind Cyber Crucible? Yeah, so uh, what happened, I mean, really was we had a bunch of SOC automation products and we still have them. Uh, we realized that the ransomware was just too fast. It was too destructive and it was too fast. And uh, we literally had a situation where we were calling the person 
um, because we got an alert and um, we were monitoring, helping them monitor. And, you know, it, it, it was like, it's almost like, you know, uh, this is a horrible analogy, but, you know, you're on your military base and all of a sudden you find that 100 suicide bombers are, are scattered throughout your military base, right? Oh, well, man. You can start trying to capture them, but now you have, you have a problem here, right? You know, these guys are detonating as fast as they're being approached. And so uh, we, had, we had that, and I realized there needs to be a different solution. And we looked around and realized that we, we actually took – we had a tool that would be able to capture the encryption keys being used by um, some remote access tools, some data breach tools, right? Okay. And we, we pivoted it for ransomware, like their early versions, and we were able to grab the encryption key. And then go back, and we made a bunch of automation to decrypt, right? Oh, that must have been really upsetting to a whole bunch of people. I got cussed out, and like I was googling, like tr- kind of translate, like, okay, what does this mean? You know, it, it's it's actually really interesting. There are ransomware developers and operators who are very unprofessional, you know, and oh. then there are, there were other ones that were very professional, and it was it was like you and I talking, you know, they had already reverse engineered my software. They knew how it worked, down to the function name, you know, and it was just a chat among professionals. Uh, you know, they were very calm about it. You know, um, it's really cool. But uh, I, so, sorry, I got you off track there. Continue, <laughs> continue. Uh, oh the, yeah, the thread. so so uh, you know how like in those Pixar movies where um, or, or like Ant Man where like there's a big explosion or like yep. the train scene in Ant Man where like it yeah. looks like it's a real train and then you, it's really this little tiny thing. So. Without many people knowing, there was like this arms race and this battle going on over 2020 between us and the ransomware people, uh, where uh, they were, you know, evading and, and doing trying different things, and we were red teaming our own stuff and seeing them do stuff. And of course, Microsoft was introducing bugs for both of us to deal with while that's all going on, you know. But um, uh, but what, what happened was was that it was a big arms race. It was a big growth period for the ransomware maturity and for us. And uh, where we sit now is, um, so we, we have our driver. We realized that the business need, uh, honestly, we had this really cool thing that made the, the, the attackers really angry, which was uh, we could decrypt Ryuk in about five minutes. You know, we were busy um, capturing things that might be keys, maybe, and then putting it all back together with a whole bunch of cloud computing, you know, um, and saying, okay, here's our recipe, you know, uh, and uh, the... Um, you know, the attackers hated it. And then we had some CISOs over, some CIOs and CISOs over COVID, where they were like, look, I don't have a budget right now. That's good they were open about it, you know. Um, and they said, but uh, if you, you know, they were they're kind of like, how do you put this nicely? They were frustrated that I would sit there, I could sit there and watch the attack happen and then let them let the whole company go down and then we could decrypt in 10 minutes, you know, or whatever it was, right? And they were like, wait, so you watched me get robbed and then you came in and you attacked the attacker, you know, like, and they were like, I'm frustrated that you can just stop the burglar from hap- you know, from being able to do this, you know? So we pivoted, uh, you know, that's where business rules don't line up with the geekiness that is our nature. Right. And, yeah. um, and so we, we actually uh, pivoted to make it go super fast. And so now we're actually, uh, we have this really cool driver. It looks for like, different things that work for the hackers uh, and including, you know, the ransomware behaviors and we can authoritatively stop the ransomware knock on wood. We haven't been beaten yet, um, but um, it, it actually stops the downtime from happening. Uh, even when it's a trusted application like a Kaseya or solar winds. 
So you're shutting down the encryption process completely then. You're not even letting it start on the processor. Yeah, so our, our behavioral analytics at this point are fast enough that we have our 200 millisecond metric. So it has to be very fast decisions, right? So you're so not going back to the cloud then? We this tried. We tried. It, the latency is like even at our – we at some point had uh, – Amazon has their like uh, lambdas that are inside of their, uh, their, their uh, CDN, you know, and yeah. like the super fast reaction time, the fastest we could get it still caused downtime. We, we had wow. to go – so what happened was was we couldn't use backups on the system. Those get nuked. We couldn't even have like a cache. The attackers found the cache one day. I think they thought we were a competitor of ours, quite honestly, and then like deleted it. You know, like they corrupted it, and we were like – we needed that data. That was like our passwords for our, our server, you know. But so we – um everything is in memory, and it's all in the driver actually in the kernel space. So – and then we we have our behavioral models in there. And we react instantly and we suspend the process. So technically, you could, you know, carve it out and grab it. Um, we don't know. The problem is, is with that is, you know, as humans, if if a sock gets a call or, uh, you know, or an email from our automated notification saying, hey, yeah. 50 machines on your network, just, you know, someone has system and we just shut down 50 samples of ransomware and froze them in place. Um, we, we've learned that most folks are not in the are not there emotionally to just say, let me go ahead and calmly do a memory carve and let's start collecting right. forensics. They're on like, you know, four alarm fire mode, you know, right. so, you know. That's, uh, that's incredible technology. And, and the other side knows what you're doing. And thus far, they have not been able to break it, which is. Not yet. We do see some really crazy attacks like OAuth attacks and all kind of increasing things. So, it's, uh, it's pretty interesting. Um, we do have, before a wave of attack, I, I've kind of stopped putting on YouTube. We always had demos on YouTube. And if you go on there, you can probably still see some. Well, before a wave of attacks, we would, they'd actually have like DMs. I'm assuming it's them. You know, like for instance, when the hospitals uh, with Ryuke attacks, yep. three days before the attack, we had a DMC or DCMA like takedown uh, of our Ryuke demo, you know, and I'm like, Oh, I, it disappeared, and I was like, "Oh, let me just show the demo." And I, one day, and I was like, "Oh, it's not here anymore." Um, it was had a takedown, and then the Ryuk guys went to town on hospitals, right? So it seems like uh, they they know we're coming, and they're they're trying to hide what we can do. You know? That means what you're doing is highly effective. I I think so. I I take it as That's, a good thing. And that is a very good thing. And uh, a lot of us are very grateful that uh, folks like you are out there that, that are trying to make a serious dent into this problem. What, one thing I wanted to ask you um, was we see, you know, er every time there is a major ransomware attack that makes the news, we always get some politician on TV that comes on and says whatever nonsense they're going to say, regardless of the party involved. But one thing that we never hear from them or from or at least publicly it's not put out is that they're you know people companies need to focus on that there should be some element of threat hunting in their environments like there needs to be something there i think you would even agree you can't leave it all to technology you need humans involved with this at some point. absolutely right why does that get mixed? It seems like the focus is always on the silver bullet. It's like, just find me that one technology and I'm going to rely on that technology. But 
why not build as part of your in a corporate environment build a great thread hunting program and it does, doesn't have to be 50 people it, it can be a very small group of dedicated professionals that do absolutely well right I, I always call it like the, the chaos monkey you know like, like just have one person that uh I, I always like it when it's like a, an IT admin or something because uh, not not formally trained, you know, not like the expert on I don't know Cisco Firepower Sim. You, you don't want yeah. that that person, you know, like you want someone who's just like gonna poke around just like a hacker would, you know, and That's try right. to find. Um, I, I love that, and because um, we, we, even us with our tools, right? Like we have some behavioral analytics that is like why is PowerShell doing this? And, and we can't whitelist it and we can't blacklist it because you need PowerShell to run your business, right? And we're like, well, all we can do is kind of alert, but it takes a human to come in there and say, oh yeah, that was that was Bob, Bob and, and Mary was doing I know that guy, patching. he does yeah. this all the time, okay. Right, and, and we whitelist actually the, the specific commands, but still some of the commands are, are the same, you know? So, so some are obviously, you know, uh, not, but uh, we, we try to, remove the hiding places but it's it's never foolproof um i love the threat hunting piece i i almost uh, on on the politicians and the and, you know the businesses side um i i feel like they almost need to find a way we need to find a way to um remove the opinions uh, or or have people disclose that hey i make money off of your failure you know i i make money off of your pain like you know I run an ambulance, uh, you know, network, and I love sick people. You know, like that that kind of, you know, uh, because yes, it's necessary, but it's also a conflict of interest sometimes, right? And so, um, I, I know in our company, I always tell people, you know, if we're helping them out, I'm like, look, uh, you, you know, you know, uh, our, our salespeople as well will say, our goal here is to get you up and running so you can install our software. Like that, that's our goal, you know. And then we let them know right away, we're not here to, you know take you to the brink of bankruptcy on forensic analysis you know and, and, and stuff you know yeah and, and which I think, companies are probably familiar with after they've been hit that bill is not cheap it isn't no and and so i, I agree with you 100 percent. the threat hunting and you know trying to find these guys as they're moving around and dwelling um where internally we're doing a better job now of making a lot of this raw data available to people uh because um you know there's so many folks that just need more data you know and, and if they can get more data that's meaningful i think they can probably do a good job even if they're not nsa trained cryptography chaos monkeys you know so dennis we're at the two minute mark here and I, we'd really like to give you a chance to plug anything that you would like to plug events books appearances whatever you feel that you would like to make the audience aware of absolutely um, please so uh I'm here in Pittsburgh, uh, so we're going to B-Sides Pittsburgh, and there's other B-Sides around. Love to uh, see it. We actually – we put in for three uh, three presentations. We'll see how many get accepted. The first one is on uh, – we reverse engineered one of the ransomware protocols uh, that they use to figure out which key to charge you the most for, uh, how they do their inventory management. The second one is – 12 and it's actually a thing you know uh the th uh, second we did was uh, we did a, a 12 things that a, a, a hacker does before they run the ransomware but after they get in position they do a lot of preparation actually it's good good guy hacker sometimes you know and then um uh and then the third thing i'm doing is that i have had a heck of a time on finding accurate metrics for uh for all the actuarials and risk management folks on the business side to say here's what the ransomware is costing and here's how often um we even uh, just an example, Manoj. We um, 
we found one that uh, one example of a report that was quoted by a couple dozen people. The original report they actually forgot a zero on their math, and then it was copy pasted and used for all kind of oh, derivative man. risk analysis. So they were off by a factor of ten. And so we're, I'm I'm going to go through some of that, you know, during my presentation. So we'll see I what happens. Uh, that's going to be very valuable data. And, and, you know, one, the only thing I have anecdotally on that is that if you look at the cyber insurance market, it used to be before all the wonderful world of ransomware got hot and heavy, that cyber insurance companies kept 60 cents on the dollar as profit on every dollar collected in premium. I believe it. That's not true anymore. In fact, yeah. the payouts have exceeded the premiums and they're dipping into their property and casualty funds to pay these, which is why people are right. seeing 50, 60, 100% increases in cybersecurity insurance costs. So someone has data somewhere or it's getting developed very quickly, but you're right, it's not readily available out there. Right, and so as a risk manager, you can't, you can't go to your CFO and say, here is the risk we accept and here's the risk that we have managed. And it, I, I guess the same thing's happening in insurance companies, right? Because it's a whole separate podcast, right? But the, uh, you know, whenever the insurance company loses money, that tells me that the insurance company's math is not uh, reflective of reality. You know, I agree with you completely. And Dennis, we're at the hour here. I'm going to really request that you come back for a part two. I, I think we just have scratched the surface. If you're up for it. We'd like to dive a lot more. I know we're going to get a lot of uh, views and interests in the in this topic. It's a, it's near and dear to a lot of people at this point, and we appreciate Absolutely. you sharing your insights. Well, thank you so much for the time, and uh, I'm glad I was all caffeinated so I could just kind of keep keep firing, you know. Man, so it's good. You, you're awesome. You very very enlightening conversation. Thank you, Dennis. I hope you have a great day in sunny Pittsburgh today. Thank you so much, Manoj. Have a good day.